hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Monday, the 22nd of March. Coming up, we're going to talk with David Aiken about uh, what went down at the Conservative Policy Convention in Ottawa. Normally, you would think it'd be a bit of a snooze fest, but I do think this does affect a lot of Canadians. Speaking of things that affect Canadians, we're going to also talk about the fact that the Canadian Pacific Railway is going to buy Kansas City Southern for $25 billion U.S., and it will create the first U.S.-Mexico-Canadian railway. What does this mean for our economy, and even more so for a pandemic recovery? But first, now we are climbing the ranks uh, as far as world vaccination goes. We're now, we've gone up from 51, which was dismal, to 21. But any way you slice it, the Liberals are trying to make this not their problem. Like, this is not about them, the fact that we don't produce vaccines here in Canada. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has blamed everyone for Canada's uh, awful vaccine procurement process, except for himself. In fact, he has gone so far as blaming Brian Mulroney. Brian Mulroney was in power from 1884 or 1994 to 1993. I mean, I say 18 because it feels like it was like that long ago. Do you, what do you, what do you remember about Brian Mulroney being in power? That was ages ago. He is blaming the Mulroney government for the debacle right now with the vaccine because of the privatization or the selling off of Connaught Laboratories. Paul Lucas joins us right now. He's former president and CEO of GlaxoSmithKline Canada. Paul, why is that a false narrative? Well, uh, Kelly, it's a very interesting one. Um, so uh, unfortunately or fortunately, um, I was around back during the Mulroney years and pre-Mulroney. Uh, <laughs> so I actually know the history and I remember it as if it was yesterday. Um, Mr. I picture Mulroney, you pulling on your long gray beard right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, Mulroney followed Pierre Trudeau, and in '68, uh, Trudeau implemented a regime of compulsory licensing, uh, which basically eliminated patents for pharmaceuticals at that time. Um, so, what happened consequently was that all of the R and D that was done by the major pharmaceutical companies in Canada closed down. Uh, a number of companies just closed up shop and left. And that existed until Mulroney came to power. And um, uh, what what he did was he reinstated patent protection um, in in the early 90s. And that led to a significant increase in R&D investment in the country. In fact, it was about $100 million a year uh, when Mulroney came into power, and uh, a few years later, uh, the the industry was investing a billion dollars a year, so it skyrocketed under the Mulroney uh, years. And the the Connaught story is is somewhat misleading, as have most of the excuses that the Trudeau government has used uh, through this uh, whole vaccine debacle. Um, Connaught Laboratories was independent. It was actually Pierre Trudeau that. Um, that nationalized it. The Canada Development Corporation took it over and they ran it. And unfortunately, like most government-run industries, it got into trouble. It, it wasn't doing very well. It raised its prices in order to try and survive. Uh, it was having manufacturing problems. Uh, it wasn't well managed. And uh, Mulroney, as part of his privatization initiative, actually uh, uh, privatized it. That is true. 
But that was the best thing that ever happened to Connaught Laboratories because it was uh, taken over with, uh, eventually by Sanofi Pasteur, which it is today in Toronto. Uh, they probably doubled or tripled or quadrupled in size since, uh, since uh, you know, it was privatized. They are a major global player in the vaccine business. So um, that is completely misleading that um, that was the destruction of the vaccine business in Canada. In fact, we have more, we have two major global vaccine companies in Canada today, Sanofi, Pasteur, and GlaxoSmithKline. And what are they producing? Well, Sanofi produces um, a lot of the childhood vaccines uh, for, for the world. So they export a significant amount of childhood vaccines. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline produces the vast majority of the flu vaccine, the regular seasonal flu vaccine for Canada, and it also exports. And uh, that facility also um, produced all of the H1N1 vaccine for Canada in 2009. And so, Minister LeBlanc, I remember that's how I got involved in this whole issue. I couldn't take the uh, the misleading statements anymore. But uh, Minister LeBlanc said back in December that Glaxo had closed its, its vaccine manufacturing facility during the Harper years, uh, which was absolutely not true. It's still there. It's still a, a, a very productive facility. So you're right in your intro. Um, you know, the Trudeau government has blamed just about everybody. Uh, for their uh, lack of planning ability to get us enough vaccines so that we aren't number 21. And 51 was terrible. 21 mm -hmm. is terrible. Yeah. You know, we, are, we are a G7 country. We shouldn't be in this situation. Many more people have died than should have. And many Where more should we be, in your opinion? In my opinion, we should be in the top three. Wow. We, we had... We, uh, we experienced H1N1. We produced the vaccine for that, for that pandemic. We experienced SARS. We learned from those, uh, those epidemics and that pandemic. But we didn't, we didn't use the learnings this time around. We should have done what Taiwan did, for example, which is they learned from SARS. We should have had a terrific plan. We should have gone to the uh, global manufacturing or companies and we should have offered them whatever, $50 a dose to buy their vaccines. Um, and that would be a drop in the bucket compared to what we've been spending on our autonomy and, and, and so on to, to prop it up. Uh, oh. we, should have done, we should have done that and we should have um, jumped in with the United States and put money into the development of the vaccines, which Canada did none of. We didn't do any of that. So, Paul, what I'm hearing from you is, um, first of all, that uh, somebody, the blame should lie on somebody's shoulders. I'll ask you who exactly squarely that would be in a second. But I'm also hearing that um, as far as research and development goes with the pharmaceutical um, systems and the pharmaceutical industry, rather, um, that this is a situation where Trudeau is trying to erase the sins of his father. It's sort of like a revisionist history it is. It's, it's very interesting. It is revisionist history. And, um, you know, none of what he has said uh, politically is, has been true. I mean, the Mulroney story was not true. The Harper story was not true. And it was, and in fact, it was uh, Prime, Prime Minister Chrétien who could have continued what Mulroney started and continued to allow the pharmaceutical sector to build and thrive. 
but that government was tied in with the generic sector, um, and particularly Barry Sherman, interestingly enough. Hmm. Um, and uh, so they supported the generic sector to the detriment of the innovative sector. And when Chrétien was first elected, he promised to dismantle the patent uh, legislation in Canada. And it was only the Quebec wing of the party at the time, along with Minister Manley, who was the industry minister at the time, uh, prevented that from happening because that would have been a complete disaster. Okay. So the Christian government continued to not be supportive of the industry. So uh, before I ask you the, the big question, and I'm, I'm sure I, I think we can all surmise where you're going with my the answer to my question, but... Isn't this a dangerous position to lean into for the Trudeau government? Because by admitting um, to the fact that, you know, we have a problem with our vaccine procurement, but it rests on other people's shoulders, his government failing to, un you know, by admitting he knew about the wrongs that were done, his government is failing to undo the wrongs. So it, it would lie squarely on his government's shoulders, the responsibility, no? Yes, at the end of the day, that's true. I mean, there are there are a number of parts of the government that are at fault here. Um, clearly, the uh, Health Canada is, uh, Public Health Canada is, and um, the Liberal Party is, and the, the PMO is. Um, they did not do the job that Canadians should have expected from their government. They had the opportunity to do it, and they didn't do it. They should have learned. And they didn't learn. I mean, and, and the story is extensive. We could spend hours at this. Yeah. But, um, okay. But, Since we don't have hours, we only have like about 30 seconds or less left, Paul, right. together. Um, if we should be number three, but we're 21st as far as the rankings of global vaccine uh, rollouts are concerned, whose shoulders does, does the blame lie on? Well, you know, if the leader always has to take the take the responsibility and the accountability. And um, so it lies squarely on the shoulders of the Prime Minister of Canada. Um, you know, he is our leader. Uh, he is responsible and he is accountable. And he needs to take accountability for this and stop blaming everyone else. Because it's he, he is engaged in revisionist history. He is pointing the finger inappropriately at many other uh, groups. Paul, it's been a pleasure having you on once again. I appreciate your time as always, and hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Kelly, thank you. We all want a green future for our children. We cannot ignore the reality of climate change. The debate is over. But a conservative government will not solve this problem on the backs of working Canadians. The answer is not Justin Trudeau's carbon tax on the poor, working families, and the little guy trying to make a go of it. Aaron O'Toole uh, on Friday night. That's what he had to say at the convention for the Conservatives. And uh, the Conservatives decided to vote down a resolution to add language to the party's policy book saying, we recognize that climate change is real. The Conservative Party is willing to act. When I first read that headline out to my husband, he said, yeah, you're talking about the Americans? I'm like, no, I'm talking about the Canadian Conservative Party. We both couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, I don't mind tipping the hand here. I don't know if I should, but he's a conservative, the guy I'm married to. I'm more of a centrist, but I, he was floored by that. David Aiken joins the show right now. He is Global's chief political uh, correspondent. Hey, welcome to the show. Good to have you on, David. Hey, Kelly, good to be here. Yeah, a bit of a fun weekend on the climate file, wasn't it? Well, yeah, tell me about it. Um, What's the goal of the policy convention? In, you know, it, 
I ask you that question without hoping that we're going to bore people to death. But what is the goal? No, of the no, it's an important. Convention? That's an important issue because uh, there have been uh, conventions from any party, conservative, liberals, etc., over the years, in which the uh, the party, the members, uh, the card, the so-called card-carrying members of the party, uh, vote to do X or Y, and uh, the leader can sometimes ignore uh, what that uh, what the party has voted on. I mean, here's an example of the Liberals way back when Paul Martin was the uh, PM. Uh, I remember going to a Liberal convention, and it was at that Liberal convention that Liberals said, let's legalize pot. Um, Martin ignored that. Now, of course, Justin Trudeau would eventually follow through on that, but, you know, Paul Martin could ignore that particular wish of the party. And over the years, Stephen Harper from time to time would ignore something that conservatives had voted to do. And uh, in this case, uh, over the weekend, what had happened was a conservative MP, Dan Albus from British Columbia, lives in the Okanagan, had, wanted to put some language into the policy document that literally just said climate change is real. And, you know, it wasn't going to really cause the party to do anything. It was just going to sort of declare a state of, you know, state of fact. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to the debate, and the debate was very limited. You really only get, like, about six speakers. You don't get tons of people. But the debate essentially was along the lines this way, saying, guys, we'll look like idiots if we have to declare that this is a fact, so let's not put this in our policy. In other words, it wasn't necessarily arguing that climate change is not real. It was just saying, we just look dopey for having to say that. Mm. The problem is, we have since uh, seen, and this is the folks at the uh, the website Press Progress, one of the activist groups involved in the party right now, the Campaign Life Coalition, these are the socially conservative folks, they were sending out you know, how to vote guides on all these resolutions. And in their guide, they were saying, you know, that the science is not yet, uh, you know, settled on climate change. And in fact, uh, all this is climate, the whole climate change discussion is really just a way to get the elites of the world to adopt population controls and abortion. That's the view of the Campaign Life Coalition, which is influential within a certain core of the Conservative Party. So now the leader, here's Aaron O'Toole, you know, you displayed the clip where he says that the argument is over, the science right. is settled. And he's now got to deal with a party where half of the party is not ready to uh, jump in with that. And now, is it while half? He's making yeah, I guess it's fifty-four percent. So it is 50, half. Yeah, yeah. And and now he's got to make the case. He's not got to make the case to let's say uh, you probably never heard of this MP. His name is Damian Couric, and he is the conservative MP for basically the south or the the central western half of uh, Alberta, a riding called Crowfoot. He got more votes. He won by a bigger margin than anybody in the entire 338 House of Commons. He got like 85% of the vote. He's a conservative. Now, he could give up like 30,000 votes, and he'd still win with a, a half. There's lots of conservative MPs like that. Blaine Calkins in Red Deer. The other, Errol Dreeshen, the other Red Deer MP. They won by 80%. And there are people in that riding who, for sure, voted to say, we don't want anything to do with climate change. But here's the problem is, you know, Aaron's going to win those seats. Aaron has to win. I'll give you one close to Toronto. I'm just looking at it because I'm, I'm writing about this. Northumberland, Peterborough South. Okay, so that's like Coburg and things like that. As you drive along the 401, you get past Oshawa. You're into the riding of Philip Lawrence. He's the conservative MP. He beat a liberal just by a hair, 3.5%. Leona Alislev. She was the liberal who then crossed the floor, became a conservative. She's up there in Rich, in Richmond Hill, in Aurora Oak Ridge's Richmond Hill, one by 2%. So real squeakers. Here's two conservatives. Mm-hmm. Voters in those ridings, any number of polls say, 
often do have climate change as a top issue, and they will be hard-pressed to get reelected. Forget about Aaron trying to steal liberal seats in the GTA. He's going to be having trouble trying to hold the you know few seats he's got in this area because this party is so um, you know essentially overweight right now with voters in Damien Couric's riding in in you know rural Alberta where 85% of them are voting conservative. This is the problem for the conservatives right now is is it is a party where the the base is in the west. They have a certain view of climate change that is completely different from voters in urban Ontario, most of Quebec, a lot of parts of Atlantic Canada and BC. And Aaron somehow has to bridge the gap between his western and rural base and the eastern and urban voters he absolutely has to have if he's going to do what Stephen Harper did a decade ago, a decade ago, but when David, Harper won his majority. Can you do that when um, you're you're dealing with a situation that, um, you know, we, we've got a deeply divided party, but you courted that base to get in? Right. Uh, and this, you know, I've talked to a lot of MPs going into the convention, a lot of his uh, MPs, and there he has some fans. He has a, f- a few people who go on the record and say, I think Aaron's doing a fine job. But the problem is he's got he's got quite a few grumblers who think that uh, he's not done a very good job. And the grumbling starts with what they call the pivot, which is what just what you said. During the uh, leadership race, when he was running against Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole was putting stuff up on social media and telling everybody, I'm a true blue conservative. You want, you know, he was he was campaigning to the right of McKay and, and trying to pretend he was Mr. Right Wing. And then he got elected. And what everybody saw was the Aaron O'Toole. I think most people who've seen him in politics for the last decade knew he's a red Tory. He's from, you know, he, too, is from near Philip Lawrence's riding, you know, in in uh, in just in Durham. Um, and, you know, he's talked about how he's in favor, he's pro-choice, he's in favor of same-sex marriage, there's his climate change statement, it's real, the science is settled, we got to do something about it. And there are some in his party, both MPs and grassroots, who are nervous. They said, we, we would have just voted for Peter McKay if that's what we wanted, was a red Tory, um, and that Aaron O'Toole sold people a bill of goods. So he's but- got that to deal with, and and then... Uh, people, he's got conservative MPs who go on these talk show panels and they get asked, well, what's your climate change policy? We're getting rid of the carbon tax. Okay, and you'll replace it with? And this was the this was the speech where people expected him to complete that sentence. You're going to replace the carbon tax with what? He didn't say. He said, oh, we'll have a credible alternative. Well, you know what? Conservatives have been saying that to the electorate for the last decade since yeah. Harper won the majority. And as Hotul himself said in that speech, we can't expect to continue to put the same ideas in front of the electorate and have them come to us. We've been doing it now. There's four leaders uh, since Harper and a couple of elections. Trudeau's just going to keep on winning. So, something's got to give here. And yeah, O'Toole's recognized a problem, but he's not offering a solution. And that was my take on it this morning. I'm like, good luck. Well, you know what just happened is uh, Trudeau just won the election that hasn't been called yet. Because I think that liberals... Not like necessarily, we all, but that's another... I don't well, agree with that, but anyway. Okay, but we but all the know... the conservatives have lost the election. That You're right to say it's the conservatives may not win... The conservatives are not are, are going to have a lot of trouble trying to get enough seats. I right. think the interesting thing about Trudeau and on climate is he's vulnerable to the Greens and the NDP for not going far enough. 
And oh, that's tell an interesting dynamic, right? Listen, and the Greens are looking. Are yeah, the Greens are looking really attractive right now because it, it's unfortunate because I think people hear Green, they need a new party name, and they think Greenpeace. I really do think that's the case. Maybe, um, but they are fiscally responsible. The leader of the Green Party, she is, you know, so affable and relatable and credible, and I just think she looks fantastic as a leader. So, I mean. Let's talk about controlling the narrative because everybody knows in politics and in life, it's about mm-hmm. controlling the narrative. How are the liberals taking this story from the policy convention and using it right now? Oh, well, all of, all the parties, the Greens, the NDP and the liberals are laughing at the conservatives and saying, you know, I mean, you know, taking the party back, going back. I mean, it has just been a pile on um, from from everybody who is not a conservative um, at this sort of um as, as your husband did, looking at this headline, going mm. conservatives vote against climate change. Like, what are they nuts? And so that has been the reaction. And again, you know, I'll, I'll, there's a lot of voters out there and people cast a vote for any number of reasons. But I, I really want to point this out from 2019. When you asked voters who didn't vote conservative, so that's like the 65% of the electorate, the people who voted liberal, NDP, green. When you asked those voters, hey, what are the most important issues for you? Climate change, if it wasn't number two, it was number three, but it was always in two or three. That is the 65% of people who didn't vote conservative. And then if you ask people who did end up voting conservative, what are your top issues? Climate change wasn't anywhere near mm-hmm. important. It wasn't an issue at all. So we do have a, a divide, but it's not an equal divide. We've got two-thirds of the electorate that says, we've got to do something about climate change, and, and, and carbon taxes seem to be the most efficient, best way to go. And then you've got conservatives going, it's not an issue, and just dump the, just dump the carbon tax. So conservatives can stay there with that 35%, and they'll come back as the official opposition again. And yeah. we'll figure out, you know, what's going on. Here, One last thing, Kelly, I want to point out, a really interesting online article from a guy named Ken Bozenkuhl. You may know Ken. Ken was Stephen Harper's basically policy designer, helped Harper win, along with others, 06 and 08, really set the ground rules for Harper. He's a conservative. He's from Lethbridge. And he's got okay. an online article arguing in favor of the carbon tax for a triple benefit. One, you do something about climate change. Two, um, it, uh, it, it, uh, it, is, it is revenue neutral in the way it's happening now. And number three, if you do, in fact, reduce climate change and no longer have to do these revenue handouts, you don't have to do spending on other climate change measures. A triple benefit for a carbon tax, that's a conservative arguing that point. And mm-hmm. some conservatives agree with them, not enough do apparently. But I mean, to me, I, I originally thought when I read that headline, nicely done, totally ensure that the woke generation feels completely alienated from you. I think that they're downplaying how informed, uh, the younger populace is, uh, how, uh, in, it, it, how mm-hmm. the party needs to evolve and change in order to even entertain being in power again. So the younger population, probably like a lot of us, not just younger people, are probably going to read the first screen that shows up on their phone, right? Yep. So they're not going to scroll down three or four screens where you get the fine print about the conservatives. They'll just see the headline, conservatives vote against climate change. Okay, and that's it. For a lot of millennials, younger voters, that's all they need to know. These guys are dinosaurs and climate change not voting for them. Now, why is that important? Well, guess where millennials are living these days? They're back to living with mom and dad. Why? Job prospects. We're in a pandemic. Mm. I'm locked down. And where do mom and dad live? They live in the Conservative writings. In conservative ridings in the suburbs. So just because of the pandemic, those conservative ridings now have become more progressive, more liberal. It's now even tougher for a conservative to make a pitch to a 
suburban millennial voter because the millennial voter just looked at their phone and said, these guys are dinosaurs and climate change. And that's that. Um, you know, so it's going to be, uh, I think, a difficult, I think, a difficult thing for O'Toole to do. You know, O'Toole, I, to be honest, I had heard uh, uh, some rumors from conservative sources ahead of the convention that O'Toole was going to announce a program in which he was going to price carbon. And there's different ways you can price carbon and not call it a carbon tax, though conservatives say as soon as you price carbon, that by definition is a carbon tax. But Kathleen Wynne, for example, her cap and trade program was a way of pricing carbon, and technically it was a carbon tax. Long story short, a lot of people in the party thought O'Toole was going to announce that. He was going to take the conservatives where they'd never been and price carbon. And then you may have heard that one line from O'Toole where he said, I know there's been a lot of speculation that I was going to do something bold on climate change. Well, you're disappointed. And he he did disappoint because then he just said the most you know unexpected thing a conservative leader's ever said. We'll kill Justin Trudeau's carbon tax. So there were people expecting him to be bold, and you may see because he, he even though he said I'm throwing out the carbon tax, he didn't say I'm rejecting pricing carbon. And so perhaps you know he is setting the stage or still doing some work within his party to get people to come along to saying we still have to price this carbon. And let's figure out if we can do it in a way that, say, I don't know, Jason Kenney is doing it in Alberta. And Kenney basically imposes a price on carbon on large emitters, as they call it, on, on the big industrial guys, but not on consumers. It, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the policy wonks say that's an inefficient way to do it. It's a more expensive way to do it, but it's a way to do it. And so maybe that's what O'Toole has up his sleeve. We don't know because he, he didn't give any details, didn't take any questions from reporters on the weekend. Um, and I don't see him on the itinerary today to take mm. any questions from reporters either. Well, David, I um, I appreciate your perspective on this because you are next to it and you're really in the thick of things. And, and thanks for making it relatable and understandable for the average audience. I mean, I think a lot of people just yawn when they hear about politics because it's like more of the same. But the sad reality is when it comes to the conservatives, we're hearing more of the same and they need to change if they want to get in power. Uh, that's That was what O'Toole himself said, but mm -hmm. then he offered no evidence of change yet i guess that's if you're a conservative yet is your key word maybe he will hopefully he will but clock's ticking you know trudeau may want to call an election when he sees this kind of stuff that the time to strike may be now Who yeah knows? think david thanks so much for joining us i appreciate your time okay no problem kelly cheers all right canadian pacific railway limited announced yesterday they had agreed to buy kansas city southern railway for 25 billion u.s in a cash and shares deal to create the first rail network connecting the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. It's great news in Calgary where the headquarters is located, but what does it mean for the rest of us and, more importantly, our pandemic recovery? Here to talk about it, Andrew Willis. He's joined us before on the show, and he's back again. He is from the Globe and Mail. Welcome, Andrew. Good to have you back. Good morning, Kelly. Yeah, this is a fun deal. This is a big deal, isn't it? It is. It matters a lot to Canadian businesses because as the pandemic has shown us, you know, supply lines are really short um, and, and trade is really linked across the borders. And, and, and if you don't have clean supply lines, it's, it's really difficult to, to provide groceries, to provide auto parts, to, to keep the economy humming. So the idea behind this transaction is, as you said, is to link up Canada, the industrial heartland of the states, and then down into all the factories and all the energy sources that are in Mexico. And, and at the moment, CP Rail, which has been, been moving goods across Canada for over 140 years, they can't get any further south on their network than Kansas City. Now, Kansas City Southern, on the other hand, as you can guess by the name, 
all their rail lines start in Kansas City and head south. So into Texas and then from there into Mexico. The bulk of this company's operations, the bulk of their sales and profits, they come from railroads in Mexico. So what, what CP is trying to do is create one unified network that, that covers the whole North American continent. It's an ambitious plan. You, you said the cost up front, it's 25 billion US dollars. So it's, it's a huge commitment, um, but, but the strategic logic makes, makes all sorts of sense. Is this a done deal or is there any way that um, the Americans can push back against this? It is, it is not by any stretch of the imagination a done deal. I mean, when, when we say the logic is really obvious, three times in the last 20 years, CN and CP Rail have tried to buy big US rail networks three times those deals haven't worked out. US regulators are really concerned with consolidation. They feel that as railroads get together, rather than getting more competition, you get less, customers get charged more to pay for these deals. And there is some, you know, there is evidence to, to back that up, that, that consolidation like this can be anti-competitive. So, so the US regulators have blocked three big rail takeovers and CP needs the regulators to approve this one. Now, that's why over the weekend when they announced this deal, CP Rail's chief executive, Keith Creel, kept repeating that, that, you know, it's good for competition. There's no, customers won't lose a supplier. They'll get a more efficient railway. Um, but but it is no, it is not assured that the U.S. regulators will sign off on this one. And and look, we haven't heard yet from this, the U.S. railways. There could be another bidder for Kansas City Southern. I doubt it. It's a pretty high price. But, um, but no, this one, this is going to be a very interesting transaction. How much did that U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement facilitate this new deal? It was huge. The, 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 you know, we all talk, we're all looking back at Donald Trump in, with a different lens now that he's out of the White House. Um, that trade agreement, as contentious as it was at the time, Kelly, it did give all these producers certainty on, on trade across borders. So if you're in the auto industry, if you're in the petrochemical industry, if you're any manufacturing company in Canada, you now know that, that you have the freedom of the borders for the, for the length of that trade agreement. So it, that certainty is enormous. That's why people can now make plans on, you know, where they're going to source parts, where they're going to do production. And CP Rail can make plans on how they serve those customers. So yeah, this, this transaction doesn't happen, but for the certainty of that free trade deal. When you talk about pandemic recovery, how important is this to pandemic recovery? Because I was just thinking, you know, with airlines not flying the same way, we don't have as much cargo uh, being put in the holds of, you know, the passenger flights have been going up back and forth because they're just not happening. Um, is is this important? It's, it's, it's hugely important. When you talk to CEOs in Canada now, Kelly, they're all looking past the pandemic. They, they are thinking, they're preparing for an economy that's going to be growing strongly in the next two years, partly bouncing back from the terrible year we had last year. Um, they're, they're looking at, at, at making their operations more efficient. They're, they're looking at consumers buying. They're looking at, at, at you know, companies spending to ramp up operations. They're looking at, at, at bigger investments in tech. The railways are a big part of the recovery story. So look, you and I are still struggling with recovery from the pandemic. I, you know, there's, there's lots of concerns about the, the variants and, and maybe even one more lockdown. But in, when, for CEOs and for companies like CP Rail, they're really gearing up for a very, very quick recovery. Um, latter part of 2021 and into 2022. So that's, that's the mindset of CEOs. And frankly, that's really encouraging. That's why the stock markets rally. There's an expectation that the economy is going to come back. And, you know, you and I in the trenches, we should need to keep that in mind that better days are ahead. At least that's what the stock market and companies like CP are trying to tell us.
Yeah, and I don't know. I have the feeling that better days are ahead anyways, because I don't know about you, but I don't go out very often. But when I do go out, there's several train crossings around where I live, and I am always stopped at them. And it seems like the freight cars, the freight trains are getting longer and longer. And all I think of as I sit there and wait is, well, this is good news for the economy. This is good news for the economy. Now, the other part of that, and, and this is another discussion you know I've had in the past, is is just around how much oil is moving on those freight cars. That's mm -hmm. the other thing. Pipelines don't get built, therefore railways become a more important source of moving energy around North America. CP's benefited from that. But but yeah, no, the the, the fact that there's long freight cars that you're sitting there waiting in your in your car at a crossing, it's a good sign for the economy. You know, uh, we're shipping a lot. We we ship up a lot of stuff from Mexico, but is there what do we ship to Mexico? Is there anything going the opposite direction, or is that just a question? Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely. So we're you know we're sending raw materials down to Mexico, so Canadian lumber, Canadian oil, Canadian petrochemical products, um, and there's an awful lot of manufacturing that's still taking that's taking place. And you know we've we've talked a lot about how factories have closed down in in um, in the industrial heartland, especially in Ontario. It is true. Having said that, you know, there's been big investments recently by the automakers in electric cars in Ontario. Those electric cars, once they're made, are going to get back on trains. They're going to be shipped all over the United States and into Mexico, Mexico for consumers there. So, no, the, 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 the fact that, that, that we have these free trade agreements does recognize that these, the three economies, Canada, U.S. and Mexico, they are now inextricably linked. And there's going to be lots of trade back and forth across the border. And but look, we should all be concerned about creating industrial manufacturing jobs in Canada. They're critically important to be at the top of that food chain. For sure. Andrew, I want to thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Kelly. Take care. All right. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget, we wait for you daily. All you have to do is click subscribe and we'll be in your inbox. And if you want to listen to the show live three hours starting 9 a.m. till noon, you can do that anytime on your radio at 640 Toronto or online at 640toronto.com.